This is Melissa Milner. Welcome to the Teach Your Eyes podcast. The goal of this weekly podcast is to help you explore your passions and learn from others in education and beyond to better your teaching. The Teacher As podcast will highlight innovative practices and uncommon parallels in education. In this Zooming in episode, I chat with Paul Emmerich France. We zoom in on personalized learning and meeting students where they are. Enjoy. Welcome to the Teacher As, Paul. Well, thanks so much for having me. There's so much I want to talk to you about. What do you want the Teacher As listeners to know about you? Ooh. That's such a great question. I know I want people to know that I'm a reflective teacher and a reflective person. Like I think that's very central to who I am. And I think it's really central to the way that I teach. I'm I'm not the kind of person that does something just because someone tells me to do it. Every person, every philosophy, every pedagogy, right, has has its strengths, right? But I also think every person, every pedagogy, um, every way of thinking about teaching and learning is flawed in some way. And so like, I am just, I'm critical of everything that I hear and everything that I learn. And like, sometimes that gets me into trouble um, on social media. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes it really pushes things forward. So like, you know, I just, I, I too am that, right? Like I'm flawed as well. And I am really just here trying to do my best and trying to play a productive role in helping us forge a new vision for teaching and learning um, because there's so much that's happening right now that's not working and that's like disenfranchising people. And, you know, I think our responsibility as like a collective group of educators is to find the places, you know, where we're, we're missing kids or where we're leaving people out and fix that. So I just really, that's like really central to who I am and what's important to me. Great. So what are those places that you see are really failing? And what's your vision for fixing them? I think when when we're talking about what's not working, we have to talk about who, you know, things aren't working for. Um, and I do touch on this in, in, in both of my books, actually, that like, you know, for, for a vast majority of um, neurotypical, straight, cisgender, white students, the education system actually works just fine, because it was built for them. And the education system wasn't really built or, you know, it doesn't have structures in it that directly support students of color, low-income students, LGBTQ plus students, sometimes even even girls, you know, um, are left out of certain conversations. And so I think what we have to do is consistently look at who are the marginalized populations in our in our schools and in our education system and look at what their needs are specifically and do an evaluation of, you know, what, what are the structures in our, in our system that are preventing them from getting what they need? Wish I could wave my magic wand and do one thing and like meet the needs of everybody. But I think, you know, it starts with what I said before, which is like reflecting on what we're doing and looking to see if it's truly working. In my new book, I write about um, I write a little bit about white supremacy, and I before I want to before I talk about this, I want to like first acknowledge that like I'm a I'm a white man writing about white supremacy, and in order to write about white supremacy, I am you know citing the work of people of color who've been talking about this for longer than I have been talking about it. In some cases, longer than I've even been alive. So I want to start there and acknowledge that you know, um, but I also think it's important that white people are engaging with this 
finding ways it applies to their own lives. And that's what I'm doing when I'm talking about white supremacy in the context of pedagogy. So um, someone shared this resource with me earlier this year. It's the, it's the characteristics of white supremacy um, by Kenneth Jones. And I believe um, their name is pronounced Tima or Tema Okun. And um, so there are these, these characteristics of white supremacy and it, it basically, it just defines these characteristics. And I think this was originally created for like a more of a business setting. So it helps you see sort of how this pops up in the workplace. But I started to think about it in terms of pedagogy and where those characteristics show up in our pedagogy. And it's things like paternalism, you know, paternalism is, is our, is the tendency to sort of like hover over someone or make decisions on their behalf because you, there's something like either conscious or subconscious that makes you think that they can't do it for themselves. Either or thinking is a, is a, a characteristic of white supremacy. So it's either this or that. There's no room for like nuance or gray in the middle. Um, there's the idea that there's only one right way. That's a characteristic of white supremacy. So, so I took these and sort of applied them to pedagogy just to, and it was a really interesting thought exercise to see where they pop up in our teaching. And I think that that's like a really good place for teachers to start, right? Is like, what sorts of messages, implicit messages or explicit messages am I sending through my pedagogy? Am I sending my kids the message that I need to hover over them and like micromanage them? Do I need to, that's paternalism, right? Do I, am I sending kids the message that, you know, learning is about choosing the right answer? That's very like either or thinking or very only one right way. And I think if we start if we if we use the characteristics of white supremacy as a framework, we can see that you know our pedagogy is inherently white supremacist and inher- inherently racist in some ways, and that that actually could just like I said just could be a really great place for teachers to start reflecting and changing one little thing as a t- at a time. I I think the hardest thing, one of the hardest things about being a teacher in this very flawed system is that you know, we fall into that sort of like, it's got to be, we've got to change the whole system at once or there's no use changing it at all. And I don't think that's true. You know, I think we can make small changes to our pedagogy and in hopes that the small changes eventually, you know, add up to a much larger scale change. I've been doing a lot of work plugging into the Build Math Minds site and Christine Tonneval's work. It really is equity you know, hers is centered around math, but, you know, opening up those questions, making math more of a creative venture instead of this is the one way to get this one answer. Mm -hmm. Just what you were talking about, just being able to have girls feeling confident in math and have discussions about many different ways to approach a problem. And I, I assume that can be done in any subject area. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a very big um, proponent of Joe Bowler's way of, yes. or her suggestions around that, you know, um, and it's it's this idea called complex instruction, which is totally can be applied to really any subject. You know, the whole idea of complex instruction really is grounded in like, it's grounded in equity and it's grounded in proactively treating issues related to status. So so it's not really about, you know, who are the high kids and who are the low kids in the classroom. It's about how do we get everybody talking together so that you kind of break down those barriers. And so many of our pedagogies, whether explicitly or implicitly, right, they end up tracking kids or siphoning them off, off into groups, which is a place where, again, we can see like 
those characteristics of white supremacy pop up. It becomes more about like competition and quantitative progress than it does about collaboration and community, you know, just like the collective human experience of learning. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, as I talk about, like I, I talk about and I write about humanity quite a bit because I, I, I feel like we've sort of lost sight of that and we've lost sight of the humanity in just the, in the subjects that we teach in school, right? Like I, I love to teach in math specifically, since you brought up math, I love to teach about ancient number systems. And at first it sounds like a really nerdy thing to teach about, but one of the reasons I like to teach about it is because, and whenever I say this to kids, like for the first time that they're, they're just like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Math is a language that people came up with a long time ago to be able to communicate about things like what their crop yield was, you know, and to think that like humans created this whole system of numbers and calculations out of nothing, out of like a really clear, tangible need. Like that's actually really cool when you think about it that way. I'm even talking about like, like the Egyptian number system or the Babylonian or the Mayan number system, you know, I mean, even just like showing kids, like, do you know why our number system's based off of tens? And then I like hold up both my hands and they're like, oh, we have 10 fingers. Like, that's why it's like, yeah, 10 isn't some random number. It's like, it's actually really related to like our bodies and who we are. And, um, and I think we just, we lose sight of that when we just focus on having them sort of repetitively solve problems and, just calculating up their their scores like they they uh, it, it's no surprise why kids are turned off to academics when we teach them in a way that is so devoid of the purpose and the the humanity in in academics absolutely the why is so important so there's been a couple times where I, I totally relate to this because when we were doing order of operations I used to teach fifth grade the, the history of why order of operations came into being, you know, it's like, well, everybody was doing it in different orders and they were getting different answers. Necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, mathematicians who are very creative, they want to get their calculations done and out of the way so they can be creative with their math. Mm. Math is all around you and it's actually really creative to solve problems and to have systems that that make life easier and that's a really hard thing to change on your own. You know, like, it's also like, it's a hard thing when most teachers grew up. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, like how you grew up or what the, the way you learned when you were a kid. Oh, I'm old. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, well, when I was a kid, which, you know, seems like a long time ago now, we, we learned in a very traditional way, you know, no one was teaching me about ancient number systems or like no. why math is important. You know, it was very just like, here's your workbook page for the day. And let's, and I had great teachers. I'm not, that's not an indictment of, you know, any of my teachers. I loved my teachers growing up, but it's hard to lead that sort of paradigm shift while teaching kids when we were taught in a way that was kind of the antithesis of what we're trying to. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with Christine Tondebald's work, but Mm -mm. she literally calls herself the recovering traditionalist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm not doing things the traditional way anymore. I'm pulling from whatever resource will help my students. And I'm not dedicated to the textbook as the only resource. Just other ways to to reach students that's just more equitable and more fun. (laughs) 
Well, and it, it yeah, and I, I think there's something intrinsically motivating for a child when you meet them where they are. And I know pe- people use that term a lot. So like, I want to define that more teaching through problem solving in math or in a project-based task, right? Task, right? Like since there isn't one way to do it, students are able to show the way that like their preferred method for doing something. Right. And, and not only does that give them some agency and some autonomy in academic tasks, but it also is a really great assessment for teachers to see like what's in their toolbox or what's the tool that they're apt to use first. And that, that's one of the things I like about it so much. I love teaching writing. It's like one of my favorite subjects to teach actually. And I, a lot of the students I work with now, a lot of them, I work with a lot, with a lot of them on writing in particular, the one-on-one students that is. It's it's kind of nice to be sort of liberated from the the classroom in a way because I truly can say, like what I do, what I do with my one-on-one students is to say, I want you to journal in between our sessions, right? So I want you to write, I really don't care what you write about, like write about whatever you want to write about and then bring it to me. And then I'm able to see really authentically where they are with their writing. And even with things like seemingly like boring things like capitalization, punctuation, spelling, grammar, like that sort of stuff, I can see where they are and just meet them right there. So it's not like I come to our sessions with an agenda, you know, and say, well, today we're going to learn about this because I decided we're going to learn about this today. It's let me look at your writing. Let me see what's in here. Let me look at your strengths. And then let's identify some challenges and like, let's work on those today. And it's, it just, it just creates, I feel like more of a feel of partnership as opposed to, again, that paternalistic relationship where I'm hovering over them and I'm deciding everything that we're learning about. They can bring challenges to me. And that's, I think that's cool and empowering. Very cool. Were you teaching in the classroom? What grades? You wrote your books. Are you still teaching in the classroom? Are you just doing one-on-one tutoring? You know, how do you find remote teaching compared to being in person? And uh, any ideas about that? Yeah, so I, um, this is my 11th year as a teacher. Um, I spent the first 10 years in the classroom. I spent um, four years in public school in the suburbs of Chicago. And I taught fourth and fifth grade there, a fourth and fifth grade loop. So I had the kids for two years, which I absolutely loved. So my favorite teaching memories are from those two years or those four years, I should say. And then I moved to San Francisco and I worked for a, an education technology startup company and network of micro schools. And we were all about personalized learning there. And that was kind of the inspiration for my first book, actually, which is called Reclaiming Personalized Learning. And in that, you know, I really advocate for what I call humanized personalization as opposed to dehumanized personalization. And that was where I really started thinking about like humanization and humanity. And, and it became apparent to me, you know, how devoid our school system is of that. Um, and so then after a couple of years there, I moved back to Chicago and I had been working, I worked for a private school here for about three years. And I decided to leave in July because I, you know, quite frankly, just didn't really feel safe going back to school. And I was really disappointed with the ways in which teacher voice was being heard as we were coming up with a plan for going back to school. The reality is right now that things aren't exactly safe out there, you know, and my opinion is that if you're going to, if you're going to go back to school in person, I understand the reasons why I understand the equity concerns. Like if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that teachers are protected and 
part of teachers feeling protected is hearing their voices and hearing their concerns and giving them the tools they need to keep themselves and their students and their families safe. So I decided to leave the classroom. Hopefully it's temporary, but I started, I started my own, um, my own business and I finished writing, uh, my second book, which is called humanizing distance learning, which is comes out in just a couple of weeks actually. And so now I work with, um, I work with a lot of students one-on-one and I have a couple of pods, some of which are virtual, um, and one of which is in, in person. So to answer your question about virtual teaching, it's definitely, you know, there's definitely barriers there, right? Like sometimes the technology doesn't work. I should definitely acknowledge the fact that like, you know, I'm working, I'm working with predominantly affluent students. And so they have high speed internet, they have their devices at home and everything. So we don't have those barriers. Um, but from a pedagogical standpoint, um, it can be challenging sometimes to not have a child right next to you. And I think in some ways it's challenging because there's something to be said about being able to just point to something or model it by writing in a notebook or using tactile um, concrete manipulatives. But I also think that it's challenged me in some ways. And this is this, you know, sort of alludes to what the book is about, that I can be a bit paternalistic in my pedagogy where I you know, I do things for them that I shouldn't be doing for them. I think we can all I think we're all guilty of that at some point or another. Yes, definitely. It's a teacher thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that teaching through a screen, while I, while I, I'm not endorsing it as like a staple in 21st century pedagogy, it has really challenged me and, and helped me see the places where I would kind of go in and just sort of fix it for them. And, um, you know, what, what, we all know that the thing is right. All of us know that that's not the right thing to do. And all of us know the, that when we do that, we're actually, we're more so like solving a problem for ourselves and not actually serving our kids. Um, but we do it anyway, because that's how we were taught growing up. And because we we've, we've developed habits where we do that. So, so for me, like the, I think the, the big learning that's come away from distance from distance teaching or virtual teaching has been, you know, this really meaningful reflection on how much I'm doing for my students, why I'm doing it and where I can sort of cut some of those things out. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, you know, due to health reasons, I am home. I'm teaching remotely. Um, Luckily I'm co-teaching this year. So my co-teacher is in and I'm home and we're on zoom and then we're going into breakout rooms and then, but yeah, we're really working on the kids and fostering that independence and, yeah, it is. It's challenging. And I miss the classroom. This is my 30th year of teaching and I'm not doing it in a classroom and it's really weird. Yeah. So what are you zooming in on right now? Are you going to do another book or it just mostly planning for your teaching? Zooming in. So I'm really focused on, you know, the release of the book, which is in a couple of weeks. Um, and I think we have an opportunity here, right? It's like, I know there's a lot of really crummy things going on right now. And I I don't think we should overlook that or even decenter that. But I think there's also room to talk about like, well, what are the current problems in education? How are we seeing them manifest themselves or even pronounce themselves in this era of distance learning? What can we do to change it? So that's what I'm really focused on from like a, you know, a writing standpoint right now. I'm really focused on like, how can I be a partner? with teachers around the country to create a new vision for teaching and learning, right? Where we are 
a little bit more mindful of our of our pedagogy. And then on the other side of it, you know, I I am working with students one on one and in pods, and I I'm really glad that I was able to stay connected to kids this year because that was one of my big worries stopping teaching um, in a classroom was that I would would not be working with kids anymore, and I love doing that, you know. So I would say those are my two areas of focus. It's like staying connected to kids and also, you know, doing my part um, in terms of creating this new vision for teaching and learning moving forward. Amazing. I met you on Twitter. Is that where people, is that like the best place for people to reach you if they want to learn more about you and your book and the work you do? Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter at Paul underscore Emmerich. I'm also on Instagram at Paul underscore Emmerich. And then my website's um, paulemmerich.com and I do my best to blog <laughs> as often as I can. <laughs> or I just put out an article on Edutopia today and I write for Edge Surge, Ed Surge sometimes as well. So, you know, I can be found in lots of places and I love connecting with teachers. So please feel free to reach out at any time. Awesome. My last question. A lot of people struggle with this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I love it. What's your favorite movie and why? <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. I was like, ah. uh, okay, let me think for a second. I know what my favorite movie is. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite movie is Titanic. It will always be <laughs> Titanic. You know, it's your heart will go on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It will always go on. I've always loved that movie. I was, I think it was either my ninth or my 10th birthday. I, that was like the thing I wanted to do was I wanted to go and see Titanic. And so my dad took me <laughs> <laughs> like, what kind of kid want? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my favorite, that's my favorite movie every so often. I have to be like kind of in a mood to watch it. It's very long. It's very good. And there's one point, one moment where like Rose is being, um, she's in one of the lifeboats and she's like being lowered. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and the eyes. And yeah, and the fireworks. And I just like cry my eyes out every single time. Like you would think after this many times seeing it, it wouldn't affect me anymore, but it's every single time it gets me. And then she, and then she jumps out of the boat. Yeah. So she could be with him. Oh my God. I couldn't go. I couldn't go, Jack. Oh, (laughs) good question. And then the action, I mean, it gets, the action gets really good too. It's like, there's a, there's a lot in that movie. There is. Yeah. What's your favorite movie? Oh gosh. (laughs) Jaws. (laughs) Jaws. <laughs> nice. I'm really okay. old. I'm really old. But it's because it's, <laughs> it's a it's a pretty strong metaphor for teamwork and working together. And that. I kind of like it because these are very different, three very different men on a boat and they figure out a way to find things in common and work together. And I, I like that. I love that. This was really great. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me, Paul. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode and have not done so already, please hit the subscribe button for the Teacher As podcast so you can get future episodes. I would love for you to leave a review and a rating as well if you have time. For my blog, transcripts of this episode, and links to any resources mentioned, visit my website at www.theteacheras.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa B. Milner. And I hope you check out the Teacher As Facebook page for episode updates. I am sending a special thanks to Linda and Lester Fleischman, my mom and dad, for being so supportive. They are the voices you hear in the Zooming In soundbite. 
and my dad composed and performed the background music you are listening to right now. My intro music was Upbeat Party by Scott Holmes. So what are you zooming in on? I would love to hear from you. My hope is that we all share what we are doing in the classroom in order to teach, remind, affirm, and inspire each other. Thanks for listening. And that's a wrap.